Thank you again for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to this special webinar from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Today's topic is Next Steps in Eradicating COVID-19, Emerging Treatments and Vaccines. If you have questions you would like to submit to the panelists, please enter them using the Q&A function in Zoom. If you're viewing this webinar on a computer, the Q&A link will appear as an option at the bottom of your screen. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. We hope you will all join us virtually again on January 29th through the 31st at the STS annual meeting, STS 2021 Embracing Innovation. Please visit sts.org slash annual meeting for more information and to register. The moderators for today's session are Dr. Joseph A. Duraney and Dr. Melanie A. Edwards. Dr. Duraney is the current president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and the director of pediatric and adult congenital heart surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Edwards is a general thoracic surgeon at IHA Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery at St. Joe's Ann Arbor in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Welcome and thank you to both of you. Let me turn it over to you, Dr. Duraney, to introduce our panel. Well, thank you, Scott, and welcome to our STS webinar on emerging treatments and eradicating COVID. I'd like to welcome my moderator uh, and colleague, Dr. Melanie Edwards, and introduce our all-star panel in the infectious disease arena, my esteemed colleague here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Dr. Andrew Badley, uh, Dr. Deborah Burks from the White House, and Dr. Trish Pearl from University of Texas Southwestern. So why don't we start the show? So the FDA met today uh, to discuss the authorization of the Pfizer vaccine. And from what I understand, a green light has been given. Dr. Burks, where do we go from here? And, and thank you for, oh, they keep muting me. Okay, I think I'm good now. You're great. Fantastic. I'm coming to you from some random hotel in Philadelphia um, as we meet with governors around the United States. But it, I just wanna go through some slides super quickly for all of your members um, and really appreciate everybody's work on the front line. Just to give you an update of where we are in this particular fall that's now become a winter surge. This current surge is deeper than anything we have experienced before because it's rising more rapidly. It's broader, over 2000 counties in the United States are now in the COVID red zone and it's lasting longer. Um, and that's why we have particular concerns and we're excited about the progress um, in developing a vaccine. This just shows you the difference in slopes. We're on that blue slope right now, which is twice the rate of rise that we saw in the summer and the spring. And it's lasted now more than eight weeks across the country and continues to expand as the weather cools. I wanna take you really quickly through a series of cases so you can just see what has happened in the United States. This was March, where it's very much a metro-driven epidemic. This was then April, May, June, July, the outbreak in the Sun Belt, August, September, moving into the heartland and North and South Dakota, Northern Plains, October, November, today. And so those representatives are the counties that dark red counties are over 500 cases per 100,000. Now, just quickly going through hospital admissions, because this is what you're experiencing. This was just five months ago, four months ago, and you can see this still is resolving the summer epidemic across the Sun Belt, building up into the heartland in the Northeast, I mean, into the Northern Plains. This is September, October, November, now. And so you can see across the United States, we have significant admissions and significant new COVID admissions every day. The dark red is 25% of those um, hospitals in those counties are reporting more than 26% of their hospital beds um, being COVID patients. And then that responds to fatalities. This is just September, October, 
November, December. And so this is why a vaccine is critical, but this is also why therapeutics are critical. Um, just one 30 seconds on therapeutics, because I know you have fabulous additional panelists. What we are seeing across the United States is for the people who have comorbidities, they are not being treated as soon as they are diagnosed. Um, and we really need to ensure that as soon as a person with comorbidities is diagnosed, they receive monoclonal antibodies, either with the Regeneron or Lilly product. It doesn't work in late to sage disease. And so Rendesivir, the antiviral, the monoclonal antibodies, the convalescent um, plasma needs to be used early. So if you have patients that have comorbidities and make sure all your physicians know they need to be diagnosed early, present rapidly, and be early and treated early. They, if they get, if they're coming into the hospital day five, day six, day seven, decompensated, then you have to move into the late stage treatments, which are very much focused on anticoagulation, O2 therapy, and of course, um, steroids. But just really to get that message out, monoclonal antibodies, convalescent serum, work early along with remdesivir, late stage, go to the anticoagulants and dethamethasone and your O2 therapy. So thank you. I just think sometimes the pictures really tell the story very well. And it's why um, these vaccines are exciting, but to really get all of the vulnerable Americans vaccinated are going to take into February, March, and April. And so we are thrilled that the healthcare workers are getting immunized, hopefully within the next, within days now and long-term care facilities. But we have a lot of vulnerable individuals living in multi-generational households that are going to need to be immunized through the February and March timeframe. And then we can start really talking about decreasing hospital emissions and decreasing fatalities. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie, why don't you take the next one? Yeah, I'm unmuting. Thank you, Dr. Duraney, and thank you, Dr. Burks, for that overview. Um, I'd like to kick off by addressing our first question to Dr. Uh, Badley. Um, as we look into getting vaccinated and, um, and, and looking at the effectiveness, how long do we think vaccine immunity is going to last? And are people going to need to get revaccinated? Will it be just like the flu where we get a yearly shot, boosters? Uh, what do we know so far? So thank you very much. That's a great question. And it's one that's on the forefront of everybody's mind. The, the simple answer is the, with the length of follow-up we have from the current vaccine trials, we don't know yet. Um, that data will be accumulated over time and we'll find out. A related question is, um, as the vaccine um, targets a certain viral quasi-species, when the virus starts to change over time, will the vaccine still remain active against that? We have some early data from some in vitro experiments of mutating the virus and seeing do the neutralizing antibodies still protect against it. Uh, and the answer is for some mutants, it still has activity, but for other mutants, it doesn't. So time will tell uh, what happens as time goes on. And uh, very careful surveillance of antibody responses in patients, number one, and the incidence of, of disease and conversely, the, the rate of protection over time will help inform those questions. Thank you so much. Great, Dr. Pearl. Um, any lessons learned from previous mass vaccinations? And uh, how do we sort of reach the skeptics about uh, vaccination uh, since there seems to be a fair number of them in the United States right now? So good evening, thank you for having me. And um, that's really sort of the, the elephant in the room with all of this, with, with all of this. Uh, there are a lot of lessons we've learned from previous mass vaccinations. The last large effort of this scale was when we had H1N1 in, in 2009. Um, although if you talk to pediatricians, they'll tell you that we do this all the time. But essentially, uh, what we found is that leveraging relationships with professional medical societies and other downstream uh, stakeholders from the outset is important. So this kind of, of uh, activity is extremely important. Um, why? Because you can help get the message out. You can be uh, the ambassadors. Uh, 
with this particular vaccine, one of the most important things has actually already barrier has been broken. And that is that this vaccine is going, not going to have any expense associated with it, but that commonly is a barrier when you're trying to do mass vaccination. Um, then in addition, um, one of the other things this is gonna be associated with is with a um, uh, effective uh, systems for tracking distribution of vaccine. So that's in the process of happening and that will help with tracking this vaccine. Um, ensuring that we have adequate supply and that it's going to arrive here in a timely and appropriate manner. So I think that that's one of the big challenges we're going to have with this vaccine is, um, you know, we're talking about cold, cold supply chains and other uh, new challenges that we haven't really worked with before. Um, I personally think it's important to underpromise and overdeliver and manage that in our communications as opposed to overpromise which you know, has been a challenge for us moving forward. Uh, um, and then we have to really make sure that we're transparent about you know, what kinds of, of challenges we have and you know, what kinds of things to expect. With this, the Pfizer vaccine, what we know right now is we have really got to message that there are systemic side effects that this tells you your, your body is actually doing exactly what it should be doing, but you need to anticipate that and you need to sort of message it. Um, and then, you know, some of the things you've been seeing at the national level is really um, planning for vaccine supply scenarios. I mean, that's important in a mass vaccination effort. And you see the states doing it, you see it being done at the national level. Uh, and then the final thing that I really think is going to be one of our biggest challenges um, is, is trying to deploy this in an equitable, transparent fashion to make sure that we um, assure allocation in a way that people think is fair and targeted. And, you know, I think that has been extremely well executed uh, with the initial documents that came out from the National Academy of Sciences, and then those have been promoted through the CDC, through the ACIP, um, et cetera. And then, uh, you know, the final thing is really, we need to message this, we need to be respectful, we need to be consistent, and um, to really earn people's trust, and that's gonna be key. So I think the communications piece of this is really gonna be important. This is a new vaccine. We know that people are, um, are already asking questions. So I would say those are the key lessons learned. Dr. Edwards? Yes, well, thank you. And um, just as we are looking forward, I know that there's a lot of pent up demand, certainly with the restrictions on travel. Um, Dr. Burks, maybe you could comment on when uh, both domestic and international travel start to resume. Uh, do you anticipate that vaccination will be required as a prerequisite for travel within countries? Are countries going to require proof for uh, individuals, do you think? Well, you can see that already starting. I mean, you can see airlines around the world and countries around the world already stating that they're going to require vaccination. For those of us who have worked globally most of our um, last 20 years, you know that there's a lot of countries you can't go to without proof of vaccination because of ongoing pandemics. And so um, those, of, those people are used to in global travel, um, going to travel clinics and getting immunizations. That's why I, I do believe people will, as it becomes routine, as it becomes a requirement for travel. Um, I, I also see, you know, some states have been also very restrictive already about travel between states um, when the its outbreaks occurred, and I, you could see that states could say the same thing. So, you know, I I don't think anybody is going to mandate a vaccine, but there will be certain freedoms that will come with you getting vaccinated um, from travel to be able and to, I would imagine many countries and airlines are considering that as key. 
So, Dr. Baddeley, we're obviously the theme is vaccines, and there are different companies out there. What what do we need to know or understand between the different companies? Uh, that, I mean, for the the lay public to understand and in really the simplest terms. So, excellent question, Joe. The 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 fact is, there's at least 200 different vaccines that are being developed by various groups around the world, including a couple of vaccines that are being developed here at Mayo. Every one of those different vaccine platforms has at least putative advantages compared to the others. Um, of the leading candidates that are out there and those who are close to completing their trials, there's really two big players. One is the Oxford um, AstraZeneca, and that is a vaccine that's based on a chimpanzee adenovirus backbone. And what that means is that it has some replication potential, which means that it might drive a higher immune response. That's its theoretical advantage. The other one that's out there is the J&J vaccine. It's based on an adenoviral platform. This has already been approved, that this backbone has already been approved for a vaccine against Ebola. So we know that the backbone is safe and well tolerated. Its potential advantage is that they are doing a trial of one dose versus two dose, and there will be a significant logistic advantage if one dose is, is uh, protective. Um, I was on a call not that long ago that, that had a number of the vaccine manufacturers, uh, senior leadership on it, and most of the people on the panel agreed that with the results we're seeing of highly effective vaccines in the 90-ish percent protective rate. Um, there's really not a whole lot of distinguishing features, uh, certainly not one that would say that vaccine A should move to the top. And so I think it's gonna be an advantage to have multiple vaccines approved so that the supply chain can get to the billions of people around the planet as quickly as possible. There may be differences in selecting vaccines for different regions based upon logistic factors, where it's manufactured, the cold, cold chain, uh, et cetera. Um, but, but my advice to people when they ask me, and, and I'm asked often, as I'm sure the other panelists are, which vaccine will I take? I'll take the vaccine that I get offered the first. And, and I'd encourage everybody to do the same. Thank you, Dr. Badley. Uh, Dr. Pearl, one question for you regarding vaccination and our current um, restrictions or our current um, ways of uh, decreasing transmission are, do you think vaccinated individuals are still gonna be required to wear masks? Can they still be passive shutters of the virus? So the answer is yes. Um, and it's actually for a little bit different reason than, than what you, met, you mentioned. Uh, we actually are still waiting to act uh, to determine whether or not any of these vaccines are going to impact shedding. So that remains an unknown question. But the reality is one: there is a time; it takes time to develop immunity. Um, the second thing is to get herd immunity. You have to have a lot of people vaccinated. Dr. Burks mentioned that it's going to be challenging to get everybody um, vaccinated. And, you know, this is a communal behavior that we're looking for. We can't have some people doing it and some people not. So the, the reality is that as troublesome as this is and as tired as everyone is right now of wearing masks and, and um, social distancing, we need to keep on doing this right now. Um, and we're gonna need to keep on doing it through the spring and maybe even a little bit longer until we get a large piece of this population vaccinated. I, and this also is gonna give us time to really look at the duration of immunity from the vaccine. You know, We're getting some hints about what happens with natural, natural infection, but you know, that remains an unanswered question. So as excited as we are with what we're seeing with some of the, in, the information coming out with the two current candidates that are, there's some information, uh, we, we need to, to really understand this and people need to expect that there will be changes as we get more information. Dr. Burks, the, how will vaccination change the quarantine time, which seems to be changing even without the vaccine? And in, in the spirit of that, we have the holidays coming up. And of, of course, a lot of people 
are hoping to spend time with uh, family and loved ones and what would what are the recommendations around that now yeah thank you um really great question i mean that's why i really wanted to show those new admissions so you could see how broad that is across the country and remember in the spring and the summer surge it was very segmented into different regions of the country so there's enormous stress on healthcare personnel um, because there's not really personnel to surge from region to region as um, these cases and and hospital admissions increase. And that's why I really push the issue about monoclonal antibodies and utilizing them as an outpatient in, in vulnerable diagnosed individuals. But the vaccination piece is, is absolutely key to the quarantine question because what vaccination will do for at any one time, we have between five and 10% of our healthcare work staff in quarantine because of exposures. And with vaccination of our healthcare workers, that quarantine status, no, the healthcare workers will not need to quarantine after exposure, particularly with the rate of this of effectiveness of the vaccine. And so that's really, I think, going to alleviate some of the stress on the hospitals. Um, immunizing nursing homes, which were a lot of our fatalities, immunizing vulnerable individuals by age groups, um, getting the individuals over 65. I know you all know this, I know you see it every day, but if you look at cases in individuals over 70, 20% of them are hospitalized, even today and we're losing 10% of them. Now that is much better. We were losing 30% of the individuals over 70 in the spring. It's now down to 10, which is a great progress, but 10% is an enormously high case fatality rate from an infection. And so that's why we are really adamant, and I would say adamant about if people decide to gather and there are vulnerable individuals there, just remember if anyone has their mask off, you're creating a spreading event that could infect your aunt, your grandparents, your parents, and create a cascade of hospitalization and potentially fatalities. And so we just really wanna make it clear, any indoor unmasking right now is not safe. Thank you, Dr. Burks. Um, you know, as many of us know, our surgical um, procedures have been uh, somewhat interrupted. Fortunately, during this surge, we are, I think most hospitals have figured out how to at least keep that flow going and getting uh, patients the care that they need. And many of our population, our patients fall within these vulnerable populations. So as we are, as the vaccine is being rolled out to these patients, do we have a sense for, um, is there an optimal time frame, sort of either before or after an operation um, within which they should or could get vaccinated um, to sort of maximize their immunity, decrease their surgical risks, et cetera? That is a terrific question. And I've not been asked that before. So thank you for being so insightful. I think, you know, with other vaccinations, we've always stressed that they're vaccinated before surgery, just because of our immune system is not identical in the immediate weeks following surgery. But what I've experienced from going around the country, hospital by hospital, so many individuals have delayed healthcare. And that has had a tremendous acceleration in the magnitude and depth of disease, particularly cardiovascular disease. And so I wouldn't suggest that anyone delays their necessary cardiac surgeries or our lung surgeries to get vaccinated. I just think, you know, we have so much pathology and morbidity that hasn't been addressed during this time. And I just really want to thank the hospitals for figuring out how to do these two critical things at once, because we are seeing really significant deferred care. Um, and I agree that they're both vulnerable, but I, I do also believe two to three weeks after surgery, people can respond normally to vaccines. And so I would not hold someone's critical surgery to be vaccinated. Dr. Pearl, let's shift gears back to the different patient populations and the and and the minority groups. And you know they've been, I think, in many ways, hit hard by the pandemic. And as as the vaccine becomes available, what kinds of provisions should should be implemented to to so that we have access to these uh, marginalized communities? 
<clears throat> so that also is a terrific question. And there's not one recipe that is going to, to you know, meet all of the, the needs. And I think what we're gonna see is different groups are going to be promoting different strategies to really try and, and meet that need and goal. The good news in all of this is that from the outset, we've got an ethical framework. And I think that really sets, you know, sort of everyone's talking about it. We don't talk about this with other vaccines, but we're talking about we have an ethical framework and here's how it was, it was developed. Um, so I'm gonna go back to something I said before. As we roll this out, what we really need to do is use consistent, respectful and accurate um, communication. Um, that's how we're gonna get trust, maintain trust. Um, we need to leverage trusted leaders in the community. You know, different groups are gonna to respond to different, different leaders. In, in some communities, it's very much the religious leaders. In other communities, it's going to be the business leaders. And so we really have to work with those trusted leaders to um, help be our ambassadors, our messengers um, out there. We're gonna to have to make it easy. Uh, you know, when you are taking a bus three hours to get to work and whatever, you can't necessarily stand in line for three hours to, to you know, do all of the paperwork and whatever. So we're gonna to have to think of creative strategies which is gonna to be tough because of this supply chain that we've been talking about. So, you know, how do we do mobile units? You know, what other kinds of things can health departments do? Um, and, um, you know, I, again, I, I'm gonna go back to sort of being very transparent about how we're going to do it. And then the, the final thing is, I think we really have to, um, especially in the medical community, we need to stand up, roll up our arms very publicly and basically say, I'm going first because I believe in this and this is the right thing to do. It's been shown time and time again that your physician is the most influential person who can actually change your behavior, behavior towards getting a flu shot and other things. And so I think it's really our call to arms to go out there and do it. And so, you know, as a woman with gray hair, I'm gonna go out and talk to, to people who wanna hear it from me. But, you know, I think the, the rest of us are gonna to have to really look about what can we do in our communities? You know, how, how can we talk to them and, and make them feel um, that this is important? And then we can use them to be our spokespersons. You know, once we get into those communities, they can be our best advocates. So I think it's really grassroots kinds of stuff and there's no, there's no magic bullet out there, but you know, those are the kinds of strategies that you're seeing being deployed you know, across the country. And then the final thing I'd just say in terms of communication, um, you know, we can't just communicate like we are tonight. You know, if you looked at my daughters and they would just say, mom, that's like so last year, you know, they're talking to us via, you know, Instagram or, you know, whatever, whatever. But, you know, so I think we're gonna have to really use a lot of different strategies to communicate um, to those people and figure out what what talks to them, what talks to those groups, you know, the Facebook groups uh, for high risk people, etc. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. Um, Dr. Badley, I wonder if you could comment, given that vaccination is not going to be a, a overnight silver bullet, and we're still going to likely be dealing with disease. Are there new therapeutics coming down the pipeline that have promise uh, beyond what we have so far? So thank you very much. There's, there's a lot of new therapies out there. Last time I looked on clinicaltrials.gov, there were about 2,500 different uh, interventional trials on, on COVID. And there still is a big need to develop these therapeutics. As Dr. Burks mentioned early on, we're now understanding um, that those therapeutics which target the virus, so pure antivirals, and that includes antibody-based therapeutics, 
um, they are most effective early in disease, much like they are for other viral infections. Where we still have holes in our treatment paradigm, if you will, are for patients with moderate to moderate or severe disease. There's been one um, EUA approved for that, that's baricitinib, which is a JAK inhibitor. Um, that's to be used in combination with remdesivir. Um, there are a variety of other therapeutics that are out there that target the cytokine storm, if you will. Um, th there's a variety that we at Mayo are involved in, and I'm not endorsing these in particular, but these are ones that I think have, have promise. Um, and, and those are drugs which target the complement activation uh, system. There's, there's a fair degree of basic science and translational science that suggests that the late lung injury that occurs can be modulated by complement inhibitors. Um, there's also trials, we're involved in a trial on the GMCSF inhibitor. There's a lot to suspect that GMCSF activation of macrophages is at the root cause of, um, at the root cause of, of the cytokine storm. And then there were a large number of trials dealing with IL-6 or IL-6 receptor antagonists. They were used across all patient populations and didn't do very well. Subgroup analyses are suggesting that if you um, target those more towards late disease, uh, they may have activity. So there's a variety of trials looking at those subgroups. So those are examples of, of uh, that unmet need. I think we're gonna start seeing more and more uh, more of the antiviral strategies being moved to the outpatient setting. I, I reviewed a trial protocol today, for example, uh, of using remdesivir in the outpatient setting, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. So absolutely, lots of therapeutics on the way. And I'll point out that, that to end this epidemic is going to require better treatments, because treatments are prevention, vaccines, which we've talked about, and maintenance of all our public health interventions like social distancing and masking and everything else. Dr. Burks, how should hospitals and hospital systems disseminate vaccines? Is it, should it be mandatory for anybody that works in a hospital environment? And what should be the order with which it's uh, distributed? I've been really impressed in hearing from hospital systems um, that have really already prioritize, because obviously these vaccines will roll out week by week by week. And I, I see already that systems have put together um, and equitable, those most at risk because of their vulnerabilities, getting immunized first, then those related to exposures. Um, and it's really been in really helpful to see how each of the hospitals have approached this. And I think, please remember in every hospital systems, yes, there's the nurses, the doctors, the respiratory therapists, but then there are all the others that keep those hospitals running and they are essential. And they are the ones that have also borne the largest brunt from this disease. Um, our, our cleaning staff, our janitor staff, our um, housekeeping, our cooks, our cleaners. I mean, it's, it's, when you see who has really suffered from this disease, the number one is of course our Native Americans um, for many reasons, and then followed by our Hispanic and then our African-American households and, and really paying attention to that as you roll out these vaccines among the healthcare systems will be absolutely critical because it will be those first, by putting the healthcare workers first, they are really going to be the lead in how to ethically ethically roll out vaccines based on really um, true, true equitable need. And remember, equity is related to, to need. Um, and so we, ought, we have to be asking ourselves all the time, who should absolutely get this first based on need? And I, I'm excited to see how hospitals have taken this enormously seriously to do that. And I think it will take through December and January. I just wanna mention again, the early data, and I'm just really pleased at the FDA doing these sub-analyses. Not only did it work across all ages and race and ethnicity, it also has a suggestion of early protection um, with that first shot. Although obviously they got a second shot very soon thereafter, but knowing that you have 40, 50, 60% um, evidence of protection from disease, even in that first shot. I think this really gives us hope that over the next two months, we can really protect those people who work so hard for us 
to save our lives in the hospital systems and ensure that everyone in the system is eligible and is receiving vaccinations that need it. So just as a, a second part to that question, are there other sort of business domains outside of the healthcare industry that you think warrant mandatory vaccination because of the proximity with which they work or things like that? Has there been any discussion about, about that? You know, and hearing from the governors a couple of days ago, most of the governors really felt that strongly recommending um, was going to be our way forward. I actually look at this in a different way. I, I think now that we have this level of efficacy and everybody's lives have been altered by this and as our vitalities are mounting, people will want to receive this vaccine. And I'm more worried about making sure that we're very, as, as Dr. Pearl said, very transparent state by state, community by community of the choices being made because you're talking about a limited resource for a significant period of time. And so those decisions that we will be making over the next several months are critical decisions. And for many of these people, they will be life and death decisions. And I just wanna also remind all of us, yes, we track antibody, but remember there's the cellular part of the immune system and that is a long lived memory. And, the early studies in the immunogenicity shows that these vaccines do induce really long-lived T-cell immunity. So even if your antibody wanes, if you were re-exposed, the cellular arm of your immune system is there to activate your B-cell component really rapidly. And so this all will be studied, but I think the most important reflection of us of a nation will be how we roll out this vaccine and the first group that's gonna to have to make these equity decisions will be the hospitals and the healthcare worker system. Hey, Dr. Burks, um, I'm gonna take a question from our uh, audience and uh, direct it to Dr. Pearl in that line as we look to people who have already been infected or are currently been infected, are there recommendations for vaccination in this subgroup? Uh, so yes, there are. Um, currently, the ACIP is saying that nobody should be vaccinated um, if they've had a documented COVID infection in the past um, uh, three, three months, 90 days. So that's the current recommendation. Now that recommendation was made before a science paper was published yesterday that actually showed that you have neutralizing antibody after natural infection for five months. And so I'm actually very anxious to um, see what they say. There's been a lot of discussion about really whether this, this sort of three month period was not arbitrary, which it was kind of arbitrary, and whether or not that should not be extended to six months. So I think we're gonna see a lot of movement scientifically in the next uh, several weeks to really try and determine that. But what I will tell the audience is absolutely not for three months. And it's not that they shouldn't be vaccinated, it's that They've got some antibody right now. So let's defer and let other folks get vaccinated. As Dr. Burke said, it's a precious resource. And then what we're gonna be able to do is um, um, you know, vaccinate them. But uh, I think it'll give us also some time to really look, look at this. And, and the other thing that all of us just really want everyone to remind, or what we wanna remind everyone is, with infectious diseases, sometimes when you get your second infection, it can be more severe. So we don't want to give people a vaccine if we're going to exacerbate something. And that's part of what's going on behind the scenes also. Maybe as an extension uh, of that to both Dr. Pearl and, and Dr. Baddeley, what about children um, when there certainly is enough uh, vaccine available? And what about the immunocompromised, others that stand to potentially get quite sick with the vaccine? What would be the place of the vaccination in, in those groups of patients? Go ahead, Dr. Pearl. Uh, so in children, my understanding is that they are going to be starting or Pfizer is going to be starting a vaccine a clinical trial. And I think that's critical. Um, you know, one, because one, we need the safety data, we need to understand the immune response. 
Um, also in children, you know, clearly they are not little adults. They are, they have their own way of reacting to these vaccines. So that's going to be very, very important. Um, and that is starting. And it's also going to help us very much with planning what school years are going to look like next year. So I think that's key. Um, immunocompromised, Dr. Burks actually may know more about this than I do. I've just seen what's been published in the FDA pay, uh, in, in the FDA documents that were given to the to the committee, as well as what was in the paper that was published this morning. And um, it's clear that people who were immunocompromised were enrolled in the study. I did not see any sub-analysis there. I think as Dr. Burks pointed out earlier, this vaccine efficacy is really stable across a lot of the subpopulations. So I'm very hopeful because, you know, from an epidemiologic point of view, nothing budged. And so it suggests that it was relatively high in that group also, but I don't actually know. So, so a few more comments on the immunocompromised setting. Um, immunocompromised is not um, an all or none. There's, there's grades. That's fair enough. And, and different uh, physician groups who take care of different immunocompromised patient groups have been um, reviewing this and, and weighing in on it, including here at Mayo. Um, and that's comment one. Comment two is not all vaccines are the same. So with the two vaccines we're talking about right now, which are mRNA vaccines and are replication incompetent, um, there is likely no downside from a safety perspective to vaccinating the majority of immunocompromised people. However, with severe immunocompromised patients, it's unlikely that they're going to respond. So our uh, current thinking at, at Mayo for this, and, and that can be modified obviously, is that for patients who've had T-cell depleting therapies, such as bone marrow transplant and CAR-Ts and those kinds of things, we're, we're likely to recommend deferring transplant for a three-month period after engraftment to a point at which uh, T-cell immunocompetence is restored and you're likely to, to respond. For those patients who have lesser degrees of immunosuppression, for example, a post-transplant patient who's on a stable low-dose tacro or prednisone or, or somebody with rheumatoid who's on rituximab or something, uh, we think that, that those patients once they, they otherwise meet criteria for vaccination are likely good candidates to get vaccinated, understanding their quantitative responses might not be as robust as an immunocompetent host, but a, uh, a lesser response is better than no response. Um, so that's our current thinking. For the live viral vector vaccines, of course, everything changes because of the risk um, ratio. Excellent, thank you. Um, I have a question from our audience for Dr. Burks. Um, many of our STS uh, members are involved in ECMO programs around the country, um, and uh, many of them are reaching capacity. Um, as, as things progress through the winter, um, what do you see as the ongoing need for ECMO resources through 2021, and how is Operation Warp Speed affecting or addressing this? Dr. Badley or Dr. Pearl can can certainly address that if, yeah. if they want. Um, no question that, that ECMO resources are strained. Um, I think that with improvements in therapy, especially improvements in the inflammatory phase of therapy, and we described some of those new treatments that are being tested now, hopefully the need for ECMO will lessen over time. Um, and, and that's a hope. I, I don't have data behind that. I don't know how Operation Workseed is addressing it, um, but I, I think it is a, a critical hospital resource for hopefully a small subset of patients um, and, and hopefully capacity will be there when and if we need it. The, maybe Dr. Pearl could, to, could go after this one. The Wall Street Journal indicated that um, of the 100 million plus vaccines that would be available by Pfizer, um, uh, up till the summer of 2021, that uh, there are a number of global customers that actually uh, were also involved with the ordering. So is there a, is there a, do we have a challenge here with global customers uh, um, relative to all of our, um, all of our own citizens? Are there rules with regard to who has access to this or? 
Yeah, no, I, I don't know actually if there are rules and I'm guessing that that those rules are, uh, are held closely to the chest. But, you know, I th and what you can say and, and what we do know is with Operation Warp Speed, what the US purchased is, is really what they should be getting. But what's also brilliant, I think about Operation Warp Speed is that they have multiple, they, they went out after multiple contracts with different vaccines. So we have different formulations of vaccines um, that are gonna be coming on the market. I mean, next week we're gonna be talking about our second mRNA vaccine that's gonna be available. Um, we know that the AstraZeneca vaccine is coming down the pipeline. And so there are the multiple vaccines that are going to be available. So um, I would look at this like a car lot with a lot of different types of cars that are going to be out there. Um, and, and, you know, that's what I think was really very savvy about how they approached this. We were just talking, Dr. Burks, uh, when we lost you there momentarily about global access to the vaccines uh, and what that what the implications are for our own citizens with global customers having advanced orders and such. I'm, I'm sorry, one of my systems melted down, but at least I have multiple ways to connect. So, um, you know, some of these vaccines can be produced in really high volumes. That's why I'm excited about the subunit vaccines that are the third platform we didn't really dive into. Um, those are particularly important because they could be boosting to either of the messenger RNA or the vectored vaccines, or they can be grown. Um, these vaccines can be, be produced in the billions of doses. Um, and so that really ensures global access. And so there are, those studies are just starting in the US, but they have been started in several other countries. And those are high production messenger RNA, chemical reaction um, quantities are, the production amounts are between 20 and 25 million doses a month for Moderna, same with Pfizer. So you can, with two shots needed, you can really start to calculate how those vaccines will be rolled out. Subunit vaccines are produced in the billions of vials type of approach. So that's why having this spectrum of vaccines is really critically important. Excellent. And then um, with respect to the active trials of Operation Warp Speed, how is that, uh, Dr. Burks, maybe going to give us um, highest value in terms of therapeutics? So those have been really critical trials. But for those of us who have worked in the field, nothing is fast enough for any of us. Um, and I think what we've learned is that um, like with HIV and other diseases, having practical community-based trials, when we talked about remdesivir now being studied as an outpatient, these are things that we really have to move into kind of what we call implementation science trials, where they're more community-based they're more outpatient, real life based. They meet the needs of specific patients. And I think we've had great progress within our academic community who really dropped everything, particularly our, our HIV trialists, dropped everything to really study these um, different agents that are under study now. But now we have to really expand those studies to make them practical for the frontline and community use. And I think that's what we're hoping to see and seeing expansion within the active, but expansion also through community networks that can really take on um, these kind of more um, simple trial designs and, and more direct access of clients. In the beginning, and I, I know you all know this, most of the agents were available by, by compassionate use. And I just want to thank a lot of the companies who made really literally thousands of doses available. Rendesivir was made available around the globe. There was a huge donation then to United States. And so, yes, we need more therapeutics. I think that was covered so critically um, well by Dr. Bagley, really explaining um, we need additional front-end therapeutics for early disease, and we still need expanded um, late-stage therapeutics as we see this immunologic storm. And we need to really understand these long-term immune com complexes or immune consequences that we're seeing from 
leaky capillaries and, and leaky veins and arteries that occurred in the in the midst of the disease. And I want to be very clear, and I know your patients should know this. We know the mortality of this virus. We do not know the depth and breadth of the morbidity from this virus and what kind of long-term health consequences, even from low-grade infections, may occur in the future. Thank we you. have a, a question here, maybe for, uh, we could start with Dr. Pearl. Uh, national meetings, not just in healthcare, but in, in, many, in many professional domains, how long after the vaccine is rolled out do you think it will be safe before we could have these uh, large uh, large group meetings that uh, everyone if, you know so desperately wants to get back to in some way so i think it's going to depend on two things um one is it's going to depend on if we actually find evidence that the vaccine uh, decreases the transmission if you're incubating um, disease, uh, if you're incubating infection, I think that'll be very important information. And then the second thing is going to really be going back to this whole herd immunity. And I think that um, once we have large numbers of people who are vaccinated, and we really see that the um, the burden of the disease is decreasing, and that we're not transmitting in these in these uh, venues, then I think people are going to feel comfortable to 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 give the the green light. My personal opinion, I think it's going to probably be at least next fall, if not even further into the into the spring of, of 2022. So I, th I still think we have a little bit longer to go on that. And I don't, you know, I, I may be a little bit more negative than I should be, but I, I, I'm just being cautious um, as I think we're gonna have some real challenges getting all these people vaccinated. Um, and I hope I'm wrong. Um Another uh, question from our audience, which um, goes back to sort of therapeutics and, and treatment. As we look at rem remdesivir um, expanding to the outpatient realm, maybe for um, anticoagulants and say low molecular weight heparin or, or direct um, 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 anticoagulants, um, are there any indications or reasons to more aggressively anticoagulate patients on an outpatient basis? Great question, and and my personal belief is yes, there is a there is reason to to consider that, uh, anticoagulation on an outpatient basis. We've certainly seen here, and I'm sure other health centers have as well, people whose presenting symptom is a catastrophic clot of some kind, um, and and so it's it's a big deal. There is a trial again, one one which I reviewed in the past week looking at therapeutic anticoagulation in the outpatient setting. Um, and I'd, I'd like to echo some of the initial comments that Dr. Burks made that what is likely most critical in effectively controlling this on a population basis and on an individual patient is early diagnosis and early access to care. And if that is done well, then you should prevent or reduce the likelihood of um, severe disease from COVID. And also, if that is done well, then, then through history and physical and labs, you may be able to identify that subset of patients who requires therapeutic anticoagulation on an outpatient setting. Um, but, but yes, these are critical issues. And, and as I say, just about every study you can imagine is being proposed. And this is one that I, I very much favor. We're getting close to the end of the hour and uh, we wanna be respectful of your time. Um, two things. First, could each of you, if you could, we have many uh, people beyond surgeons on this, on this uh, webinar, uh, not surprisingly. What would be the, the most important point that you would want everybody to walk away with after this discussion is over? We can start, we'll start with Dr. Burks. Um, just picking up where Dr. Bagley left off, um, the critical role, I'm just to, everyone should know, if you are indoors and you have your mask off, it's a spreading opportunity if you're with other people who are not part of your immediate household. 
Um, and I just, and even if they're part of your immediate household and they've been other places and gathered, this, le this level of spreading that we're seeing indoors is extraordinary. Um, and we see it every day getting worse. And so as we enter into the holidays, if you're unmasked and you're with people that you haven't been with, there's potential for spreading the virus. And if that has happened, make sure if you are young that you get tested within three to five days of being in one of those situations. If you are older, the second you get any symptoms, you need to be diagnosed and you need to push your agenda of getting treated immediately. Because if you have comorbidities and you wait till day five when you start to deteriorate, it, it's not gonna work. These antivirals are not gonna work in the same way. We've seen that over and over again. So main, I know behavioral change is tough, but we have to maintain that level of extraordinary vigilance um, while we get people vaccinated so that all of the people who are vulnerable that need this vaccine as much as they do, that they can get this vaccine and not be in the hospital because they got infected from one of these indoor spreading events. Dr. Pearl. So I wanna echo what Dr. Burke said in terms of really highlighting the importance of prevention. We've spent a lot of time talking about therapeutics, but really prevention is going to be key in all of this. And we know that, and that's also gonna help us manage downstream patients better. So as much as we can do to do that, and it's not only just the masking, it's the hand hygiene, it's the, it, it's the social distancing, et cetera. The, the second part of this is we need to speak with voices that are going to help minimize the confusion out there. People are really confused. So as much as we can simplify our message, get on the same page, and really give people the information that they need in a way they can grasp it, that is going to be one of the most important things I think we can do for the public health community. Dr. Badley. I guess my main message would be maintain routine healthcare, which is get your vaccine, get your colonoscopy, get your breast cancer screening. If you have diabetes, control your blood sugars. And there's, there's many reasons for this. So if you control your blood sugars and you get COVID, you'll do better than if you don't control them. That's number one. The number of diagnoses for breast cancer and colon cancer and, and the, the commoner cancers, those numbers are down this year. And it's not because there's fewer cases, it's there's fewer diagnoses. So that is critical. That also leads into if you or a loved one has symptoms of, of an acute event, like an MI or anything else, get that health care. The other part of the routine health maintenance is get your flu shot. Um, having co-infection with flu and COVID could be devastating. Um, there's some suggestion that routine vaccines can reduce your risk of getting COVID. Um, so that's a, the, having those health maintenance events are good. And I would add that getting your COVID shot is now part of that routine health maintenance. So all of those together maintain routine health maintenance and healthcare. Any other questions, Dr. Edwards, from your standpoint? You know, I think, you know, everyone wants to know when life will get back to normal. And I think that question has been answered um, by our esteemed panel and that, you know, probably not anytime soon. And I think we really need to be vigilant and um, spread the message to our communities and our loved ones and uh, be an example. So um, I'm uh, thankful for everyone's uh, information today. Yeah, I think on behalf of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and certainly my, my co-moderator, Dr. Edwards, I really, this has been just an extraordinary discussion and I have learned uh, much more than I actually thought I would have picked up the, the nuances and the, and the insights that you have shared with us have really been uh, enlightening and informative and we are very grateful and we will continue to look for your advice and guidance as we as we march forward with, uh, you know, with uh, COVID-19. So thank you very much and enjoy the holidays and stay safe uh, and healthy and uh, happy. Thank you very much. 
Thank you, Dr. Duraney, and thank you to all our panelists today for their participation and insight. The archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow on STS.org, as well as on the STS YouTube channel and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. We hope you will all join us virtually again January 29th through the 31st at the STS Annual Meeting, STS 2021, Embracing Innovation. Please visit sts.org slash annual meeting for more information and to register. The STS has a webpage dedicated to resources and updates related to COVID at sts.org slash COVID-19. This page features information about past weekly webinar series, including links to the archive versions of all of our previous webinars, video messages from STS President Dr. Duraney, online community discussion boards, a link to the STS COVID resource utilization tool, and a comprehensive COVID resource list tailored to cardiothoracic surgeons. Thank you all again. Stay safe and happy holidays.